All right, just go to Jude. We're going to do everything Jude this morning, piece by piece. This letter is incredible. It's, I believe, the second shortest in the Bible. Philemon is shorter. But its, it's length is probably overshadowed by the, at least historically, in the debate about what its place is, what good it is, why would you read it. It's overshadowed by the fact that it looks like either it is a copy of Second Peter or Second Peter is a copy of it. Second Peter being claimed to be written by an apostle, this being claimed to be written by Jude, the brother of, of James, who is the brother of Jesus. Um, that argument uh, is probably what most books about Jude will spend much of their time dealing with, and it's really a complete waste of time. It believes that there's no such thing as oral learning. By that I mean auditory, like that you could listen and remember and repeat over time without writing it down. The modern world doesn't believe this is possible, but the ancient world shows it's quite possible. And so for the first 30 years, 20 years, 15 years of the early church, the teaching of the apostles was largely orally held. They were repeating what Jesus taught them. And again, it was all audible. It was spoken. And then as they move out from Jerusalem, they find that other teachers slip in and they have to begin defending this and then these letters begin to be written but if you can imagine then in that jerusalem church following pentecost that by and large they were opening the old testament every week no matter what apostle it was but they were speaking similar things every week from the old testament using jesus words like you'd find them in matthew now as the substance of most of what they talked about and then in in doing this in preaching on Jesus' words, over time, they begin to say things the same way to each other. And they even maybe begin to say things poetically. So they build a, a conversational platform, a language on what Jesus said with each other. So that then when Peter writes a letter, letter warning people and when Jude writes a letter warning people, there's no reason to think they had to see either letter to do what they did. They simply were from the same church. And they told the same stories. And it would seem Jude really wanted to focus on the stories. So the thing that's easy to miss about Jude, if you try to compare him to 2 Peter and figure out what's going on there, show that all aside, Jude is concerned about two things. He's concerned about Christians in the synagogues before the temple of destruction getting led astray by false Christians in the synagogues. Okay, He's concerned about that. And the guy just happens to be some sort of poet or storyteller or bard. And so he wants to name drop every story and every analogy that he can in his short little letter. It's beautiful. It's a lot of fun. But it's very different. He's only got maybe six things he actually says that aren't illustrations. But they're very pointed. And we're going to try to pull those out here as well. I can't say it's actually six. But it's not a lot. Okay. Let's, let's just attend to his opening, which we won't spend a ton of time on, verse 1 and 2. But notice the bond servant I read in New King James. It'll say servant in, in uh, ESV, I think. The word is slave, really. But the problem is in English, slave means black person stolen from Africa. Right? That's kind of what slavery is. That's a bit nearsighted in the history of slavery. It certainly existed and was, I would call it, great evil. But it's not the only slavery there's ever been. And slavery is taken in a lot of different forms. In fact, I would contend you're less free today than you think you are if you have uh, uh, student loans and a mortgage. I mean, how free are you? Can you just up and go? Not so much, right? So there's levels of service and being subjected to authorities. When he calls himself a bond servant, though, what he means is I'm sold out. 
Like I'm owned by this guy, a bond servant of Jesus, my older brother, by the way, but he doesn't say that. He says the brother of James, which some actually would use to say that this is not from Jude, the brother of Jesus, or he'd say the brother of Jesus, unless he's humble. And he realizes that while, in fact, he came from the same womb as Jesus, he did not come from the same spawn as Jesus, the same sire as Jesus. And that James, his brother, who has been a leader of the church, is certainly more well-known than he is. And so I'm James's brother, and I'm Jesus's slave, he says. That's the stamp of authenticity, not of someone who doesn't mean what he's saying. He calls you, the listener, sanctified. You're already holy by hearing. You're called, and you're already preserved in Jesus. He's writing to Christians, not to non-Christians. He doesn't care about non-Christians. He does care about non-Christians. He doesn't care if they like what he says. He wants Christians to hear what he says and to believe it, to believe it's for you and true. Now then, verse 3, he says, I'm diligent to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. The but there doesn't have to be a hard but. He's kind of doing both. I want diligently to write to you about salvation. And to do that, I have to tell you, you need to fight for it. That's what he said so far. Verse three, okay? Verse four, why do you need to fight? For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, that is, they are creeping in unnoticed to be condemned by God, and he knows it, and is letting it happen, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, most of the words James is going to use about sin in this book, you will, you will have an American or an English need to think it's about sex, lewdness. It's about sex. Well, it can be, but really, that's just the far end of it. Lewdness, ungodliness, impiety, lawlessness. The idea is you don't care what other people think. You don't care about truth. You turn the grace of God into an excuse to do what you want. He writes this letter to tell you, such people go to your church. Such people are members of your congregation. Such people are running for political office. Such people work at the supermarket. Such people are all over the planet. In fact, every person who's not a Christian is such a person. But then a person who says, I am a Christian and is also such a person, we need to be especially careful of in the public square of the church. How much of the last 200 years, you, you may not be able to know this because you haven't had to dig into the arguments, but the last 200 years, most of our scholarship and debate has been arguing with non-Christians who say they're Christians about why they should believe the Bible to be true. And they continue to believe it less and less and take away more and more until at this point, it's like we have to defend every single thing we say. The opposite is what Jude wants you to do. He wants you to know that if anyone arises among you and says to the scriptures, no, you can know right off the bat, this is, this is an ungodly person denying Jesus, marked for condemnation. Non-Christians, whether they're in the church or not, don't say what Jesus says. And Jude wants you to listen so you're not led astray. Now, the most important thing, again, in verse 4 before we go on, is to know that the vast majority of unbelievers in the church are unnoticed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go dogmatic on you for a second. In the Augsburg Confession, our, our official document that says, we believe the Bible says this, 
In Article 8, we believe, the Bible says, there will always be in a public gathering of Christians, don't think like this morning, but think this congregation over time, over five years, people coming and going to this altar, there will always be unbelievers who get communed here. There will always be unbelievers who listen and say, yes, amen, I believe it. It's just a fact. They don't know they're unbelievers. That's the worst part of it. They're just bored. <laughs> they're just trying to get through the weekend and get rid of church so they can go on to the rest of life. Right. Um, you might struggle with that, but that's not all you do, right? You also want to be here. You want to learn. You want to grow. Yeah? So they're unnoticed as they come into the church because they don't initially speak against what the Bible says. And so they're here. The question becomes then, what happens when you find in the public square of your church enough people speaking against Christianity that you better start defending it? Who are you talking to at that point, a Christian or a non-Christian? And that's what Jude's going to talk about is, well, you don't know, but you better not be deceived. Uh, so to set us up for this, he goes off in his story realm. So we're, we're diverting from the, the, the main point to give you like support from three stories from the history of the Old Testament in verses five through seven. A story of the people coming out of Egypt, a story of the fallen angels in Genesis chapter three, and then a story of Sodom and Gomorrah, a non-church related event, right? So you have first the church, people coming out of Egypt into the promised land, but they don't make it. They end up in the desert because of their unbelief and many of them died. And Jew says, that's an example of your God and how he handles people who say, no, thanks. That's what he does. He'll, there you go. You're gone. I'm not gonna take you into the promised land. That's one. Two, angels. We don't wanna be the angels you said. Okay, fine, you're done. Go to hell, angels. Wait a long time, though, because I'm going to save the people. Right, that's number two. And then number three, a non-church, non-holy presence of God related thing, cities of just pagans. There's no religion there except Lot, one guy, and he leaves. What's God do to pagans when they get bad enough? <sighs> Wipes them out. Why? Remember what he said in the, in the Proverbs text this morning, Lady, Lady Wisdom. It's not like God's like, I'm mad at you. You're bad people. I'm going to crush you. I hate ants. No, right? no, 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 no. It's more like, okay, I have really tried to stop you from doing this. I can't. Go ahead. Eat the fill. Do it. Oh, did fire just fall out of heaven? Well, that's what happens. I mean, yes, was it a miracle that Sodom and Gomorrah had fire fall out of heaven? I, I think so. But I also believe that the created order by the Almighty God made is made in such a way that it won't let evil go too far. You can look it up in Proverbs 125, verse 3, the scepter of wickedness will not rest on the land allotted to the justified. Since Jesus bought this planet with his blood, he will not allow evil to deceive you, to railroad you, nor even to remain upon you so far as the pagans are concerned. Their government will fall, and you will live through it, or you will die confessing the faith in the mist, and your children will live through it. And that's a different view that we've had as Christians the last, what, thousand years. But it's the one we got to start having. we got to start believing that no matter what else goes around, on around us, we're going to survive through this thing as a people. Because as a core, as the body of Christ built together, like unto those who watched people in the wilderness drop side by side, Moses, Caleb, Jacob, the children, the promises, they go in. Yeah. So Jude's basically saying again, the God of the Old Testament is your God. He actually is for you, not against you, but take it seriously because the other side of this thing is like the abyss of death, right? If you want to highlight something this morning, come back to it later, verse 8. Verse 8 is the whole book in one verse. 
He tells you who false Christians are by identity. And then he tells you three things they do. And when later in the book, he's going to tell you to judge for yourselves whether people are speaking for Christ or not. These three things are pretty key. As you listen, if you leave them in front of you, like does the, do people talk this way? If all a person ever does is talk this way, you don't have to believe they're a Christian no matter what they say. If all they ever do is, oh, where is it, verse 8, uh, dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. I'll do the three things first and then come back to the word dreamers. Defile the flesh is, it's okay in the English. The word is like staining though. And you can even hear the, the English spill comes out of it. So spilling things on your flesh so that they're, your flesh is stained. Well, what does that even mean for your body? And, and remember how I said earlier, you're going to want to lean toward sex, the sixth commandment as the thing that would be defiling the flesh. And certainly adultery defies, defiles the flesh. But the word's bigger than this. It's about letting the carnal spirit Letting the, the, the instinctual animal that you are as a fallen Adam dominate you so that you do what you want with your body rather than what God gave you to do with your body. That's how you defile your body. That's how you stain it. Right? There's a lot of ways to do that. Now, we all do this, and Christ gives us forgiveness for this. What a false Christian will do is say, no problem. We're cool doing this. Let's do it together. And if you're always hearing someone say, well, I know the Bible says that, but I'd rather live this way. Well, they're defiling the flesh. And at a certain point, you can say, oh, I don't think they believe because they keep, they keep not doing what it, what it says is true. You can also take this then with rejecting authority. I don't know how else to put this than to go straight at the, the heart of the beast in our age. In our age, the word patriarchy is a worse word then like, like guttural cuss words for most people. Like if you watch HBO, you'll see words fly, but you will not hear people speak well of the patriarchy. Oh no, that would be bad. Well, the word patriarchy, at least in English, comes from largely referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of Christianity. But it just means father. Now it's interesting that Black Lives Matter, a Marxist communist organization pretending to help black people, but really just helping themselves, they say officially in their documents they're against fatherhood. They want to remove it from society. I don't think that's shocking. I think that's normal. I think that's what our society has been doing for about 200 years. We've been trying to demasculinize everything. So the feminism no longer is about equal rights. It's no longer about women being valuable. It's actually about hating men and trying to destroy the image of God in the father of the family. Well, that's what rejecting authority is. So anywhere you see Americans just hate the fact that someone's over you and you have to listen. And then if you're in church and you're hearing a Christian always say, I can't stand anyone telling me what to do. I never listen to my boss. I hate my boss. Well, then again, who are they speaking for when they speak these ways? Huh? Um, third one, speaking evil of dignitaries, the word dignitary there is the word glory in the Greek. This word will show up a lot in Jude, so I really think it's wrong to translate it differently here. But the idea that it's wrestling with is what does it mean that you would, you would uh, speak evil of glory? What does that mean? Well, the glory that Jude will talk about at the end of the book is the glory of knowing God's going to save you, that Christ is risen, the, the fact of Christianity, the truth. So what they're going to do is speak evil of 
the fact of Christianity, the truth, the glory of Jesus' resurrection, the fact that you're paid for, the fact that you're immortal now, they'll say, but, no, maybe, I don't know. Like, just always have an excuse to not believe that, to not confess that and not stand on that. And then the medieval church saw this then as often coming out against the people who would speak it. So the dignitary here could be, say, a pastor who speaks the word of God, could be a parent who speaks the word of God, could be a child who speaks the word of God, and they reject that dignitary, that ambassador with that truth from God. The false Christian chases their own carnal passions, rejects all authority, and certainly rejects what Scripture says. That makes them what he calls a dreamer. I love this. Dreamers. Proverbs says fools, right? But a dreamer. Just think, someone who every step they take is imagining the world being different than it really is. And they're telling themselves every step, it's real, it's real, it's real, it's true, it's true. But they're living like the emperor without clothes. And what Judas says, you can actually see it. You can actually see it. They're dreamers. They talk about all sorts of stuff like they know what they're talking about, and they have no clue. And you don't have to listen. You certainly don't have to let it run your church. I don't think anyone's trying, by the way. It's just what the text warns you about. <laughs> so again, he gives you an example. Michael, the archangel. Why do I think this guy's a poet? Because he twice will quote things that are not scripture or reference things that are not scripture as big stories that he wants you to realize are as true as scripture. Because while scripture reveals very specific things God needs you to know, it is true you can never know everything God would want you to know, and he can always reveal more. And so what Jude's trying to say is you can find these truths in other stories. I mean, we'll just go real kind of hard left here for a second. The entire Marvel series of movies, whether you care or not, is built, about, built upon one man who's a bad person, who by the end of the story sacrifices his life to save everybody. You've heard that story before Marvel did it, except Jesus wasn't a bad person. He just took the place of the bad person. So it shifts the story a touch. But the story is always the same story. So then when Jude says, didn't you hear the one about Michael and the devil? You didn't get that one? It was in the intertestamental period. So after Moses dies, the story goes, his body is there. and the Torah doesn't tell us what happens. And apparently the devil wanted to come and do something to it. And so Michael, the archangel, like he helped Daniel, was also there for Moses while he died. And in the midst of that great reality, as Satan is spewing blasphemies left and right, Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. And that's the story. And what he wants you to learn from that is how little power you have. So we're going to talk about judging your neighbor in a few minutes and how you should. But you do it from Michael's perspective here. Do you get to say to your neighbor, you're wrong? Dear Lord, have mercy on my, my neighbor. There's a big difference in those postures. The difference of grace and not grace, really, right? So Michael displays that he has no power to condemn the devil, but the Lord will condemn what the devil's doing and saying. And he can repeat that. We're to learn that as well then. You have three more examples that follow, all describing Old Testament stories, the way of Cain, the heir of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. Oh, they're all so good. They all have a common line, which is greed. Greed. Probably the least preached against sin I've ever, even I don't know that I've ever heard someone preach against greed. I don't know that I've done it. And yet if you're, if you're attentive, I mean, it's not just about, can I have some money? It's more about, do I have enough bread for tomorrow too? That's really what it's about. And it's not that it's wrong to have enough bread for tomorrow. It's to worry if you don't. That's what's wrong. 
Uh, you can store your breath, it's fine, right? But believing that you can control tomorrow, well, that's the heart of all these stories, whether it's Cain trying to change reality by killing his brother, and whether it's Balaam trying to improve his current state in life by realizing he's a prophet and trying to make money on it. <laughs> Big warning there. Uh, or Karah, who didn't think it was fair that Moses got to be pastor, and he wanted to make sure everyone knew it. Those are the three things. All of them rejecting authority, all of them wanting power, all of them wanting to be able to control their world. These types, unbelievers, all unbelievers, and then particularly uh, the warning to you, are here amidst your love feast. That's an early church way of talking about the Lord's Supper. They're here amidst the church. They feast with you, that is, they come to the Lord's Supper without fear. They're not worried about not being Christians. They kind of think they are, but they really don't care. Get it over with. Get it done with. Service was too long this week. They don't care. They are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, without fear, serving only themselves. And then four pictures of, uh, again, poetic language, trying to get you to see how bad it is, right? So the last one, the star in wandering darkness, that's a comet. So imagine hitching your tail to a comet and following it forever. How good are you going to do? Well, that's what happens when you let non-Christians tell you how to think. That's one, uh, the tree twice dead fallen over with its roots out. And you got the, the dust storm as well. These are just all things that are no good, have no value. Well, the words of someone who rejects what the Bible says, especially as they're rejecting it, have no value. They have no value. You don't even need to defend yourself against them. Just ignore it a little bit. Just know it's wrong. Now, he then talks about what are we to do? And this is where it gets kind of kind of weird. Uh, you got Enoch mentioned, who again is a non-biblical quote he's about to do about a biblical person like Moses and like Moses whose body didn't get buried normally because it tells us before the flood that Enoch walked with God and that he was not. Uh, the assumption is he ascended into heaven somehow. Goodness knows how, we know almost nothing else. But there's a book called the Book of Enoch that was written about 200 years for, before Jesus. It probably is based on some oral traditions going back to Sinai before or before, poems or songs that people knew. It clearly is not scripture. It clearly is not from Enoch, but he quotes it. Why? Well, it's just like I did with the Marvel movies a moment ago. If, in fact, it takes one man standing in the place of sinners to die for the life of the world, then indeed I can preach that all day long. Huh? Well, so he says this part from the great epic of, Ebo of Enoch. Don't worry about reading it yourself, but this part's true. Listen to it. Look, he says, the Lord, that's Jesus, comes with 10,000 of his saints. Well, what's that? A large, large number of Christians, lots of people who believe to do what? To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, among them, of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, it's easy to get kind of distracted by the fact that he says ungodly, what, five times? Four times? It's very Hebraic. This is the way Hebrew poetry would be. We try to change our, our, our words to make them more interesting. Like, I'll, I'll give you, I'll talk about a flower and its petals and its smells, and I'll, you know, go off on stuff. In Hebrew, they just repeat the same word like 15 times, and that's poetic. That's how they see it. 
So he's doing that here to drive home the point that there's ungodly people. That's the point of the letter. There's ungodly people. What are you to do? Well, you are these 10,000 saints of Jesus, the church, and you are to execute judgment on all and convict all who are ungodly of their ungodly deeds and the harsh things which they say. Which is to say, when someone lies about God, you are to tell the truth about God. And then see what happens next. It reminds me of what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in, I think it's John 17, that when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. And now it would seem Jude says we are to do this. So the remainder of the book is, again, it's a how-to manual on how to judge your neighbor as a Christian. I really recommend you pay careful attention to it, okay? It, it, you're supposed to do this, but it's also dangerous. It's very dangerous because pride, <laughs> right? Uh, you can destroy yourself, but if you don't listen, you're ignoring God, okay? So let's, let's focus in on these last few minutes here where he describes, you want to see who you should not listen to at church, Right? You're at church, you go to church, you've been there a long time, you know this person is always grumbling, always complaining. Wow, they might not be a Christian. Do they walk according to their own lusts? Now, you said we should do this, we said we should do this, they did what they wanted anyway. Hmm. They mouth great, great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. That means they talk about your future in positive terms. You're amazing. You're going to do great. We'll do great. We'll do great together. Let's go. We can do it. Does it ever happen? Or are they flattering you to use you? You, beloved, against the grumbler, the malcontent, the flatterer, you remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says as much in chapter 15, we heard read too, how they told you there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. What are you to do, Christian? You're to know Jesus said this is going to happen. It's not a surprise. It's Augsburg Confession, Article 8. We don't even take very long to confess. This is going to happen. Know that, and then know that you don't listen to people who confess they're not Christians by never confessing the Bible or Jesus. When they only talk about their sensuality, what they want. When what they do only causes more division and never binds and never unites. Well then, I mean, this last bit of verse 19 is terrifying. They're not Christians. And you're supposed to know that with conviction. Now, what do you do? What do you do when you've been in church long enough to know someone who actually never talks about Jesus and only ever complains? And you realize Jude says they don't have the Holy Spirit. Here's where you got to be careful because what would the world do? What would the world do? If I told you about a field in which I planted some seed and then there was planted some weeds amongst the seed and they came up together and you came to me and said, what should we do about the weeds? What would I tell you if I was Jesus telling a parable? I tell you, don't pull up the weeds. Let them grow with the wheat, lest you destroy both. And I can tell you another parable about a net being dragged through an ocean, catching all manner of fish, both good and bad. And at the end of time, they are segregated by God, as he knew all along they would be. So the church, this is where the set-apart week three public space thing really matters. This space is not the Christian church. 
The Christian church is people who believe the word of God, and we come together in this space, and you can see us eating Jesus. But in such public spaces, there will be those who do not believe in Jesus. Knowing this, that they don't even have the Holy Spirit, you, what should you do, remainder of the book? Verse 20, notice how it doesn't talk about them. You figured out there's an unbeliever sitting next to you in the pew, and it says next, worry about yourself. You, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Plural, by the way, group. You, church, growing together in what you know to be true, and you, a single member of it, knowing it to be true, praying in the Holy Spirit, right? I know there's unbelief. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Keep yourselves, plural, in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. What will false teaching always try to remove? The mercy of God given to you in the resurrection of Jesus that guarantees your eternal life. That's the font of salvation. And all the enemy wants to do is take some other thing and put it right on top of that font so you can't see it anymore. Then he's good. But let's do whatever you want. Our job is always to pull off the font, to uncover the pure flow of the resurrection and the atonement and the story of how we're all going toward that future together. Pray on that. Build yourself on that, even though others around you are lying in whatever meeting you're at. And then, verse 22, 23. It says some there. That doesn't help. There's a, a, a set of phrases in uh, Greek they use really fluidly. It's, it's men dead. Men and dead. And you'll find men at the front of the, of the sentence and then dead like three or four times throughout the, the sentence. And in like in wood in Greek, the way they teach you to translate it is on the one hand, you have this. And on the other hand, you have that, which no one really talks that way very much. But the idea here is that, right? Not that on some. On the one hand, have compassion, making a distinction. On the other hand, save with fear, pulling them from the fire. In any case, hating even the garment defiled by the sinful flesh. Now, I'm going to try to pull that apart then. Because again, this is what you're supposed to do when you realize your friend's not a Christian and you thought they were, right? Well... First, on the one hand, have compassion. The word there is the same as mercy, right above it in the previous sentence. It's the mercy Jesus has on you. Eleison, have mercy on them. You found someone who's not a Christian, good for you. What do they need? Mercy. <laughs> not your judgment. Mercy. But they're ignorant and rude. Yep. <laughs> what do they need? Mercy. Not your judgment. But it says, have mercy making a distinction. Again, the English isn't good there. In the Greek, it's judging them. You can't have mercy on someone until you judge them. It just can't be done. You have to believe they're in a worse state than you are on some level to have mercy. Right? I want to give you food. You must be hungry. I judged you. Right? So it's not like it's a bad issue to judge. It's what do you do with the judgment? Here again, have mercy, judging rightly by what you hear, who needs it and when and where. On the other hand, saving with fear, it says. And there are the Greeks very clear. It's saving with fear. As you seek to have your salvation spill out of you on the ground into other people so they become Christians too. Know that if they're outside of Christianity, they're in fire already and you're getting close to the fire. And so while you go to make the distinction and have mercy, be aware that liars whose consciences are seared will use this as an advantage to take control of you, your life, and your church and destroy you. So save with fear 
lest they bring their evil in here and make this a place to worship their gods. We don't want people to come here just because. We want them to come here because they actually believe. And so again, have mercy as you judge all people, saving with fear, and then again, pulling them from the fire, not getting pulled in, hating even the garment, and it does say hate there, even the rag, the clothing that has been, there's this stained word, defiled, spilled on, stained by the flesh, which again, it, it brings up a number of potential realities. The point being, any non-Christian you engage with is doing selfish, evil things all the time and telling themselves they're great for it. So don't think the life they have, the clothes they wear, the stuff they get is what you want. It looks nice, but their lives are hard and painful. Your life is hard and painful and hopeful. And there's a massive difference in those things. Now, the closing is another song. I told you this guy's a poet. Was this a song they sang in the early church together that he then wrote so that these exiles from Jerusalem and their synagogues could be reminded of their time together singing in worship? <laughs> Maybe. Certainly, it, it rings of that oral tradition idea. First, I want you to know it's, it's, a, it's a praise song. Okay? So this is not a promise to you. This is a praise song to close us in doxology, in glory to God. But at the heart of this doxology is the assumption that God's got you, that you'll never fall away because God's got you, that you're going to learn how to apply, practice, and believe everything he said to you today. It's assuming you know that. And so you're just going to say, thank you, Jesus, for guaranteeing this is going to happen in my life. And that's what he says. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, faultless, before the presence, like in the face of his glory with exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. Amen. Why would you want anything else? The Almighty God has made you his own. To him be all his almightiness, knowing that the promise is that you will not be deceived. But with careful ears, you will learn how to judge the difference between the shepherd's words and the deceiver's words. And when you find that even in the Christian church, there are people who speak the deceiver's words, you will have the heart to patiently endure, to confess the truth, and to bind together with other Christians to make sure nobody gets to put one over on your whole congregation. That's stewarding the public space together. Again, next week we'll move into the altar that stewards us for all eternity. Uh, Oh, I'd like to close that better. I'll just say those who trust in Jesus Christ are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. And such are you in the name of Jesus. Amen.